another weekend and plenty from the day's radio. This is Playback Daily. I'm Carol Moran and here's what you might have missed. But I really see our people differently now. Like people in Ukraine are so great and they're not indifferent. They're very passionate about their homes and um, they're willing to fight for their families, for their homes. And it's beautiful. I've had text message threats. Next time you call to my house or knock on my door, I'll have a pot of boiling oil ready to pour on you. You got that as an anonymous text? Anonymous text. And the worst one I got was, I had to prevent my boyfriend from hitting you as you walk past us today. What the country is, is about to witness is the rebirth, or even the rebirth of Fianna Fáil. <laughs> And we'll start in the morning, marking the beginning of the war in Ukraine, one year on. At this point in time, we do not have exact information as the attacks happened in the dark. But what we do know is that war has started in Ukraine. Mariupol is not planned to be occupied, but it just destroyed. You have your suitcase with you. Are you planning to leave Kiev? What are your plans? No, no, we are standing. We will stand and fight. And we hope that the world will understand it and help us. A soldier entered our house. My husband and I were there. At gunpoint, he took me to a neighboring house. He was ordering me, take your clothes off or I'll shoot you. Then he started raping me. While he was doing that, four more soldiers entered. I thought I was done for. Look, there's one way for this war to end, the rational way. Putin to pull out of Ukraine. He's paying a very heavy price for failing to do it, but he's inflicting incredible, incredible carnage on the civilian population of Ukraine, bombing nurseries, hospitals, children's homes. It's sick what he's doing. support of Ukraine, in support of freedom, but the war continues. Then Anya Lawler spoke to Ukrainian ambassador to Ireland, Larisha Gorashko. The longest day of our lives, said President Zelensky this morning. We woke up early and we haven't slept since. What's the past year been like from your point of view? Uh for me and for many Ukrainians. Uh, I can describe past year as a pain, uh, hope, mm. gratitude. Mm, it's fight. hard to find the words, isn't it? There's yeah, been so it's, much. it's very yeah, it's very difficult yeah. to find the I was struck and by one line in face to our uh, armed forces. Yes, and I, I want to talk about various aspects of all of that with you now. But one thing I was struck by in President Zelensky's speech, he spoke about all the numbers people have on their phones that will never be answered, that this has become a daily reality for Ukrainians. And he was saying, we will keep those numbers on our phones and we will bring our captives back, that that is one of Ukraine's war aims now. You know, this this year was extremely difficult for, for all of us, for, for all Ukrainians. Uh, our life has dramatically changed. Uh, but we became stronger. 
Uh, now we we know the value of unity, unity of nation and unity of uh, of uh, of Europe, of the whole world, and um, together with our partners, we are sure and that we will prevail and we will win. Um, we know the value of of solidarity. And President Zelensky has also also said 2023 will be the year of victory. Uh, there's a Russian offensive going on in the east at the moment. Can we expect a Ukrainian counteroffensive soon? Do you think your country will see victory this year? Um, I believe that we will see uh, the victory of this year because we have a very strong support and uh, the adoption of the UN resolution yesterday uh, demonstrated this very well because 141 uh, uh, countries voted for for justice, uh, for comprehensive and just and lasting peace, and for withdrawal of uh, uh, Russian troops from the territory of Ukraine. Uh, of course, uh, the main important thing is to continue support of Ukraine. Uh, financial, humanitarian, and military. It's it, because without our partners, without help of our partners, it would be very difficult to to win and to defeat uh, Russian Russian uh, army. And as I said, millions, I think about 8 million Ukrainians have been displaced around Europe. There are around 70,000 of them here around in Ireland. And the opinion polling, the latest in the Irish Times today, shows a lot of Irish support for those Ukrainian refugees who are here, but also fears about more Ukrainian refu- more refugees coming here in the future in the sense of accommodation. Do you share those fears? And how many more will come? Where will they live? It is very difficult to predict uh, how many more uh, will come, but uh, according, I am in contact contact with the Department of Children, and according to the last information which uh, I have, uh, this number of uh, Ukrainian displaced people um, is uh, decreasing now. So, uh, as for today, just 20 people per day. Uh, are arriving, which is much, much less. Uh, so you think in terms of, because there was, a, I think at one stage, a cabinet briefing <clears throat> that the numbers, a number of refugees overall and asylum seekers would double this year. You don't think it's going to be doubling in terms of Ukrainian refugees in 2023, no? I think... Um you know, it depends of many, uh, many... Um Depends on what happens Conditions on the battlefield, I suppose. W- depends yeah. what, is, what will happen in yeah. Ukraine. Um, it's first, first of all, because people prefer, of course, to stay at home uh, and not to, you know, not to go anywhere. Um, it's, it's quite traumatic yeah. for, for people and chil- for, for adults and for children. So um, a quite big number of Ukrainians fled country before the winter because, uh, because of blackouts, etc., and absence of heating. And you think they may go back in the summer? Yes, of course. Right. One other question. Uh, your counterpart, the Russian ambassador to Ireland, has accused us of breaching our neutrality and our 
support for Ukraine. Ukraine, we are a, a neutral country and the government says our stance is that we are militarily but not politically neutral. Uh, but when, and this was raised in the Dáil yesterday as well, when, for instance, Irish troops are involved in training Ukrainian forces in demining, isn't that a breach of... Do you see Ireland as neutral towards Ukraine? I am uh, sure that military Ireland is neutral towards Ukraine. Uh, any Irish soldiers or militaries uh, don't participate uh, in... In, in war, in military uh, actions on the ground in Ukraine, and even training, it's not in Ukraine. I mean, uh, Irish militaries participate in, in training of our militaries, not in Ukraine, uh, just abroad in the, in the EU, on the territory of EU. So, no, of course, no. There is no breach of any neutrality. And of course, Russian ambassador uses on, on, on his favor and provoke, you know, it's not only war. Russia conducts not only war on the ground mm-hmm. in Ukraine, but hybrid war. So everywhere, Russian ambassador and Russian embassy and Russia itself uh, use, um, you know, all possible means like disinformation and uh, propaganda uh, everywhere in, in, and in Ireland as well. Ukraine's ambassador to Ireland, Larisha Garashko, talking to Anya Lawler. And Keane McCormack spoke to two women whose lives have been changed utterly since the Russian invasion. Every kind of artillery they have used here. Maria Polis lives in Nikopol. Uh, there is no such a district in my city that, that wasn't uh, shelled. And as you can hear, the city endures frequent shelling by Russia. Nikopol uh, is uh, in the south of Ukraine. We have the occupied Zaporizhzhia nuclear plant uh, right on the other side of the river, four kilometers away from uh, our city. Living in a war zone means there are compromises. One of those is that people have fled Nikopol, but they come back to do business frequently. They fled not far, just far enough not to be shelled. A lot of them are back to the city during the day for work, to make shopping and so on. The life, of course, it's nervous, of course, it's dangerous, of course. Uh, I am the volunteer from the uh, very beginning of the full-scaled invasion. The humanitarian work Maria does involves helping people who can't afford food. The basic products are available on the shelf. The problem is that a lot of people lost their jobs and lost their incomes. They just cannot afford uh, the goods they could afford before the invasion. The financial situation is rather tough. Maria has witnessed the horrors of war over the past year. Uh, yes, actually, it is a bad dream and uh, ru- ruined uh, ruined buildings, uh, injured people, killed people, uh, ruined families. Maria is hopeful Ukraine will win this war and rebuild. Actually, I'm sure. I'm not, I don't hope. I'm sure that uh, my uh, country will rebuild. Those sentiments are shared by Olga Shevchenko. I already see this happening, even in the war zones, even in Kharkiv. I believe in Ukraine. I believe in our future. She's a humanitarian worker with DePaul, Ukraine. I'm from Kharkiv, Ukraine. I live 
on the train, I should say. <laughs> I live between Kharkiv, Kiev, and Odessa because we have operations in both three cities. So I have to travel a lot. Olga oversees the delivery of psychological supports to people made homeless by the war. Every day when I go to the day centre that Depaul Ukraine runs, I hear people talk about how they lost their husbands, their grandmas or somebody in this war, how their dead relatives have to like be in the house for weeks because nobody could go and get them, um, take them out. So there are a lot of a lot of very difficult things. I sleep less than I used to. <laughs> um, I don't dream. And as you can hear, the war has deeply impacted Olga. I was in Kharkiv for my friend's funeral. He was killed in combat last week. I'm sorry to hear I that. I live in a family behind, so that's like something that happened very recently. And my family was affected. My dad's printing factory was destroyed by Russian rockets. My coffee shop, I had a coffee shop before war, that was also destroyed. My mom's apartment was hit by a rocket. So there are a lot of ways to be affected by this war. Um, and every day we see people who go through it in their own different ways. Um, children who wait for their dads to come back from the from the army, children who were under occupation with their mothers and haven't had any schooling in a year. So they're like nine years old and they don't know how to read and write because they forgot everything because of the stress. Um, I feel very angry and very sad, uh, but also very hopeful. It's a mix of feelings. But I really see our people differently now, like people in Ukraine are so great and they're not indifferent. They're very passionate about their homes and um, they're willing to fight for their families, for their homes. And it's beautiful. Olga ending Kian McCormick's report for Morning Ireland. And in the afternoon, we headed to the D Hotel in Drogheda and Liveline's Funny Friday. Hello, good afternoon, and you're very welcome to Liveline. <laughs> and here we are, here we are. We're in the D Hotel in Drogheda. We've, we've so many guests here today for Funny Friday. Uh, first one in, he's on, as you well know, he's on the campaign trail again. Bertie Ahern. Bertie, good afternoon. How are you? How are you, sir? Recent, recently been welcomed back be into the Fianna Fáil party. Welcome. Welcome back at Ear Taoiseach, as I know you like me calling. Uh, good day on, on, on Lena Bio. I know you're rushing up in the hour for the hour. How, how did it happen? Was it all of a sudden, did you just get a notion to rock up to Fianna Fáil headquarters on Mount Street and yeah. rejoin? Yeah, I, I, I just rocked up at the... the, the, the the, the Fianna Fáil headquarters uh, in Mount Street. I said, start packing your bags, lads. <laughs> I said, the Fianna Fáil headquarters is heading back to Fagan's. <laughs> We're moving back to the north side. <laughs> I, I, I said, Joe, there, 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 there's a new sheriff in town. <laughs> or, or maybe I should have said the, the, the old sheriff is back. <laughs> and, uh, but how does it feel, Bertie, to be, to be rejoining? And like, how come it's... How come it's taken you 10 years? Yeah, I, I would have rejoined in years ago, but I, I couldn't pay me membership fee, Joe. <laughs> uh, Fianna Fáil don't take cash. <laughs> and I didn't have a bank account. So, so I, I wasn't able to pay me membership fee until I joined the, 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 the Revolut. 
Uh, imagine she's a Joe, they don't take cash. What, what a punch of tools. Yeah, what, what, what does it feel like to be rejoining uh, I, your T-shirt? I'm not so much rejoining as renewing me baptismal vowels. <laughs> <laughs> and look, I, I, I think it's a great honour for Fianna Fáil. <laughs> <laughs> I, I, I'm working on persuading Ray Burke and Ivor Carney <laughs> and uh, P. Flynn uh, uh, to come back. And I, I, I think if we can do that, Joe, I, I think if we can get the old gang back and get a bit of crack going again, well, get the tent back up in Galway, yeah. <laughs> bring back the builders and, 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 and the choppers. <laughs> Maybe even get an old tribunal going again. <laughs> People love them tribunals. Ah, no, 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 hang on. People they love them, Joe, you know yourself. People love the tribunals. They, they were a lot more popular than your own bleeding programme. <laughs> What's it called again? I'm, I'm after forgetting the name of it. Lee, Liveline, Lena Bio, talk to Joe. Is, uh, is, is that the one where people are always moaning? What's this? Well, 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 sorry, sorry. No, I, I said, is that the one where people are always phoning, Joe? Joe? <laughs> are, are, are you deaf or what? Uh, and come here, Joe, is, is Vincent Broad still around out there in RTE? I, I don't think Vincent could cope when all the crack went out of politics. And politics is after getting too bleeding sanitised. But, uh, uh, but, but Bertie, I thought that the, but that's what the people were calling for, a, for a, for a clean-up of politics. Ah, this... yo, you're, you're, you're very naive <laughs> for an outsider. <laughs> <laughs> Uh, the, the, the one thing I've discovered over the years is, is that politicians will get away with anything as long as they don't bore the arse off people. <laughs> we'll just look at the bunch we've looking after ting, things at the minute, Michal and Pascal and the rest of them. Not a bit of crack in one of them, Joe. They're like a bunch of constipated altar boys. <laughs> the people would have more crack on a poor Claire's out into Loch Derg <laughs> or, or even a trip to Drada. <laughs> Ah, we're running out of time. So, so can I ask you the question that's on everyone's lips? Do you really think you can change the fortunes of Fianna Fáil, arrest the slide, reverse the trend, rejuvenate the party? Right, you don't have to put the bleeding question up in lights, Joe. I'm not, <laughs> I, I, I'm not thick. And look, the simple answer is your question is, when I was boss, we were getting 40% of the vote. In 1997, we got 67 seats. Uh, the, the Shinners got one. <laughs> Fast forward 2020, Michal is the boss, well, kind of, and, 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 uh, and the Shinners get 37 seats. And no wonder the people are beating down my door to come back. <laughs> what the country is, is about to witness is the rebirth. Do you, do you get it? Or even the rebirth of Fianna Fáil. <laughs> From Live Lines Funny Friday. And on the Ray Darcy Show, with the shortages of Mediterranean salad vegetables in scarce supply, Chef Nevin Maguire was talking about embracing homegrown veg like the turnip. Now, as well as Roald Dahl, the turnip made the news this week. Yes, yes, the humble turnip. Environment Secretary in the UK, uh, Therese Coffey, was referring to the shortage of salad salad leaves and tomatoes because of uh, bad weather in Spain and North Africa and uh, she referred she was talking about it anyway about the shortage and, and, and then she mentioned the turnip here we go but it's important to make sure uh, that we cherish the specialisms that we have in this country uh, a lot of people would be eating turnips right now rather than thinking necessarily about aspects of lettuce and, and, and tomatoes and similar there you go yeah so, so she's asking us to well she was asking the people of Great Britain to cherish the turnip. Cherish the turnips. Oh, baby, I cherish the turnips.
Tom. It's- Sorry. Um, Nevin Maguire, cherish the turnip. It's a good mix. Well done. <laughs> Thank you. I knew you'd appreciate that. You've been a DJ. In your, in I'm not a DJ now. Let's <laughs> clarify that. I'm a chef. There You're was an interest in dance music. Right, okay. Nevin, great to talk to you. <laughs> good to chat to you. How are you? Now, now there's a serious side to this in that yeah. and we've been talking to you about this for years, that, that we've moved away from eating seasonally uh, and we expect to have everything all year round. <laughs> it's true. And, yeah. Well, I suppose... During COVID and after COVID, a lot more people have reconnected with food and a lot more people are growing their own produce. Mm. Like, you know, turnip, lovely, humble, delicious, good value. It's in season at the minute. My mother used to cook it regularly for us as a family, feeding a big family of nine of us. It's a very versatile vegetable, so why not? So I think it's about reconnecting with the seasons. You know, what's in season, you get best flavour, you get best price. Yes. So it's a win-win for everyone, and, and that's what it's all about. And be honest with me now, Nevin. Yes. Are you a fan of the turnip? Yeah, I do like it. Yes. I, I do like it. Do I cook it every week? No, but I certainly do cook it. And uh, I think it's a very versatile, like in a soup. Or my, what my mother used to do is peel it. So I'd never see her using a potato peeler. She'd get a, a kind of small little paring knife, we call it. She'd yeah. take out off quite a bit of the skin and then she'd cube it and she'd steam it or boil it, steam it usually, and then she'd mash it. And yeah. then in a separate pan, she'd cook off some onion, a little bit of smoked bacon and stir that into it. Oh, oh gorgeous. Yes. <gasps> It's, it's a difficult it's a difficult enough job to peel a turnip isn't it yeah I mean like, it's like peeling a potato you ah, just so take no, a it's not, no it's not it's not it's a lot more difficult sorry well, okay okay well hold on they're bigger they're bigger they're, fair they're enough, bigger fair and enough. they're harder <laughs> you cut them in four. You cut them into cut four them kind of wedges. Okay, right. And okay. then you peel them. So you do. You just yeah. use a knife, um, which is probably better. And you kind of always peel down, like you're kind of peeling an apple, peeling yes, a potato. Yes, yes, but you yes. take more of the skin off. So you do. Um, yeah. Listen, they're a bit more work, but they're in season, and you know they're delicious. Even roasted. We talk about roasted vegetables, your peppers and all that. But roasted turnips are gorgeous with a little bit of honey, a little bit of oil. Mm garlic, a little touch of sweetness honey gives it and then a little bit of vinegar. I like balsamic vinegar but I'm a fan of that anyway. Roast it in the oven and you have the most delicious and if you're not a big fan of turnip you can mix it with some parsnips, you can mix it with some uh, carrots which work really well. Delicious. I'm a huge fan of turnip and it's it's a lovely memory from my childhood. I probably shared this with you before but uh, on a Wednesday, it was always a Wednesday, uh, our dinner was uh, mashed turnip, mashed potatoes so you mash them together Uh, and then there'd be, not not the healthiest of things but uh, there was a lot of us so my mum had no little or no choice. So uh, fried rashers and, and sausages, and then the the the, the oil from the pan. You oh, pour that. that on the mashed potatoes and turnip and mix it in. Why word? So good. Wow, wow, so wow. good. Yeah, mm, so that, good, so good. And you see, you've never forgot it. So you're reconnecting with your childhood. Yes, your mother yes. was obviously buying with economically what was in season. Yeah. And maybe it's not in fashion as it used to be. Maybe salary is more fashionable. Like fashion in food kind of comes and goes, but right. it's all about, you know, keeping it I simple. Never, you know. What's the difference between a turnip and a swede? Well, they're both in the same family. Yeah. So the swede is actually the turnip that we call a turnip. You know, the orange-fleshed one, the big one that you said? Yes. That's exactly what the swede is. So they're both very, very similar. Now, the small white turnip is quite bitter, and some restaurants use them. We don't tend to use them here. I think they're particularly bitter, so they are. That's just a personal right. taste. So I like the orange-fleshed one, which is known as the swede. I don't want to confuse But that's, uh, but, 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 but that's a turnip as well, then? So. <laughs> it is, it is, okay. it is, it is, exactly. Right, it is, okay. it is. Now, yeah, you, they're all part of the same family. Nevin Maguire from The Ray Darcy Show. And on the Ryan Tuberty Show, it really is never too late. Jean Farrell was talking to Ryan about transforming her life after retiring from teaching and wanting to stand up on stage and make people laugh. (laughs) 
I was born in the 1950s, Ryan, and there were many big families around then. Indeed. Um, I was born in Athlone and I've lived in Athlone all my life, a lovely town on the River Shannon. And I was the second eldest of 10 children. All right. Uh, 10 yeah. children and you in the second eldest. So yes. you got to probably eat more and say more than the others. No, we got we spent a lot of time minding all the others. Oh, you were I was okay. fifteen when my youngest brother was born, so all the time there were babies arriving, and we were minding them. But it was the same in every single house yeah. in the town, in Athlone at the time. Not the norm. Uh, yeah. Athlone's a beautiful town, um, and I know people talk about Sean's Bar a lot, and they talk yes, about. They do. Uh, all yes. the, 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 was, was John McCormick from Athlone? That's right, the famous John McCormick. He was a superstar before we heard the word. He really was, wasn't he? I mean, mm. uh, what an extraordinary voice and uh, his presence is, is marked, I think, in the museum there. And the, the guy, am I right in saying that the, the lovely gentleman that you see in the, the Angela's Bells uh, doing the print work? That's right. That's Athlone, yes. That's Athlone too. So it's a, it's a great old spot. And um, you have children and grandchildren, do you? I do. I have three children and four lovely grandchildren. Thanks be to God. And what did you do for a living before you retired? What was your... I qualified as a teacher, Ryan, in yeah. 1971, a primary school teacher. And I taught most of my life here with the Bar Nuns in the primary school in Athlone. And I retired about 10 years ago. Did you enjoy teaching? I loved teaching every minute of it and I still meet all the time. I go now to the doctors, the dentist and they're all my past pupils. Oh lovely, oh lovely. That must be <laughs> yeah. really lovely and, and do they all say, you, do, they, do they make themselves known to you because you won't remember them? Oh they them. do. I'm in a shop and a girl would say hello Mrs. Farr and I'd say do I know you and she'd say you taught me when I was five and when she tells me her name I can see the child in her face immediately and it's lovely to have respect and regard from people. That's a lovely thing to, to be able to say. Um, what, what was it about teaching that you enjoyed most? The children. I loved the little children. And I have grandchildren now the same age as the children I taught. And I loved that age. I love five and six. That age is gorgeous. They're so innocent and lovely. Uh, tell me about your, your notebook that, that you, you, <laughs> you, you contributed to regularly. What, what was this notebook? I, I had copies in my desk in school and in my desk at home and any funny line I ever came across I wrote into the book into the copy books because Ryan there was a bubble of fun inside me but I had to keep my head down because I was born in the era where it was, it was an insult to be said you think you're great so I kept my head down and thought and I hadn't the courage really to do anything about all my funny lines until I retired which is wonderful And what sort of things now, I mean, you don't have to read them out or anything but what, what, were, <laughs> were you like an observational comedian in, 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 in these notebooks you'd see like two people doing something silly or did you hear a line on TV or what was what were you filling up the copy I, I book? just hear a, I'd hear a line reading mainly I'd come across a line if I'd be reading oh, or yeah. if somebody said something funny I'd write it down and I had four when I retired uh, ten years ago in 19 whenever ten years ago I had uh, I was 61 I had four copy books full of funny lines and I didn't know what to do with them Oh, that's amazing. I wish I had that discipline. I read, I read an awful lot and I often see a line and go, it's like watching, and I think I feel how some people feel when they see somebody scoring a goal in a football match and I get to see this line and I go, wow, that was a, how did they do that? And you took these lines down into the copy books and you filled the copy books and then you retire from school. What did you choose to do with them? What were you thinking? I, I didn't know what I was going to do with them, but I knew that I wanted, I, I'm, I wanted to stand up on a stage. I'll tell you why. My daughter brought me to Joan Rivers. Actually, it was shortly before she died in Vicar Street yeah, in Dublin. Yeah. And I sat there with my daughter and I saw Joan Rivers making 
the audience, I mean, she's a professional, the best, making everybody laugh. And I thought, that's what I want to do. I want to stand on a stage and make people laugh. So Jean told Ryan about the six Marys. It's about six Marys, and I'll tell you what their names are. Their names are Mary White, Mary Brown, Mary Green, Mary Black, Mary Grey and Mary Golden. And I'm the narrator and I have diaries and I read through the diaries telling about their lives. And just I'll tell you about two. Mary Gray is the dull, boring person in all our lives, the negative person. And Mary Golden is golden and marvellous and wonderful and the kind of person we all really want to be at heart. So I read the 1950 diaries where we talk about the nuns and the gym slips and the escapades we got up to, mainly Mary Golden. Then in the 1960s diaries, which I run off stage and change into 1960s clothes, we talk <laughs> about um, our search for Mr. Wonderful and Angela McNamara and the hops. And, oh, yes. Uh, all, all, all the excitement and our expectations of romance were ridiculous. Then in the 1970s, uh, we join, I joined Weight Watchers and meet all the Marys again. And we set, we've settled for Mr. Ordinary. And it, actually, what everyone identifies with is the ordinary, the, the reality yeah. of married life. Like one, one girl says that she had done a cordon block cookery course before she got married. And no matter what delicious sauce she prefers for what delicious meat she gives it, when she puts it in front of her husband, he covers the whole lot in tomato sauce. And I pour <laughs> tomato sauce all over the <laughs> and then And then we decide then the children, like the, when Mr. Wonderful hasn't made her all our dreams come true we decide the children will and then we have we all meet and we just I read out the diaries about the reality of children and then the next one is the reality of teenagers and really in the end the, the theme is universal Ray, uh, Ryan sorry you, you think that uh, everyone else in life is going to make your dreams come true but actually you, you make your own dreams come true Well it sounds it sounds marvellous now I have to say and fair play to you know, retire after being such, I'd say you're a wonderful teacher and, and to, to pull that together, that took courage and what a shame that you were so repressed uh, back in the day that you couldn't <laughs> chase this dream then. But you, but your time has come. Yes, Ray, I, I watched, uh, Ryan, sorry. I'm, That's okay. Uh, Ryan, I watched Super, uh, the Super, Super Ages, Ages on Monday. Yeah, we, we had a yeah, few Yeah, I thought it was wonderful. Yeah. And after watching it, I got in touch with you, really, to tell people that there is life after retirement. That's really the main message that I want to say. Jean Farrell from The Ryan Tuberty Show. And on Today with Claire Byrne, reporter Evelyn O'Rourke was taking a look at the issues affecting women in politics. With the recent announcements from politicians like New Zealand Prime Minister Jacinda Ardern, the Scottish First Minister Nicola Sturgeon and closer to home, Roisin Shortall and Catherine Murphy stepping back from their leadership roles. The role of women in politics is under scrutiny and Evelyn O'Rourke has been finding out more about this. You began, Evelyn, by joining the Labour councillor Alison Gilliland. She was out knocking on doors in her constituency. That's right, Claire. Getting ready, I suppose, this conversation, talking to people who are getting ready, gearing up for the local elections in 2024 and Alison is one of those. People might recognise her name because she was Lord Mayor of Dublin last year, 2021 to 2022. She's a Labour councillor in her second term there in Artane Whitehall. And when I joined her, she was out doing what councillors do, knocking on doors and delivering her newsletter. So I just wanted to get a sense of what it's like for her in her role, you know. So she talked about the pressures of it, but she also talked about those issues we hear about, the phone messages and the, you know, the kind of harassment that politicians can be getting. So here councillor Gillen and talks to me as she makes her way around her electoral area, delivering her newsletter. Hello. Alison, how are you? This is Hello. my granddaughter. So Alison, we are out with you as you're doing your drop. It's half four. 
right, on a Tuesday afternoon. In terms of the workload for a councillor, can you give us any sense of what's involved? It never stops, in all honesty. And we don't have any admin staff. A lot of us juggle a full-time job or part-time job along with our councillor role. You could get queries about housing in particular. It could be litter, it could be the bus routes. You know, things will arise on the doorsteps. So how did you get into politics and such? What was the draw for you? I have a trade union background, so I'm used to being active and campaigning. I had been asked before and I was reluctant. It's very public and the idea of having your face up on a poster for me was very intimidating. But the way I looked at it was, yeah, I'm contributing. It's a learning experience. And since then, I have loved it. I'm horrified really by the abuse women politicians are getting. Talk to me a little bit about what it's like to be a female public figure. I was out dropping leaflets and this particular person who happened to be a female screamed abuse at me for five, six doors up. Now I was out on my own. So was that like a verbal version of what you can get online? Yes. And they draw on your poster. Sometimes you perform in a sexual act and it's a tiny, tiny minority. But I'm very conscious of how I use social media because I just don't want the harassment. For me, Facebook is a strong community space. Twitter tends to be, at times, a horrible space to be in. And I've had text message threats. Next time you call to my house or knock on my door, I'll have a pot of boiling oil ready to pour on you. You got that as an anonymous text? Anonymous text. And the worst one I got was, I had to prevent my boyfriend from hitting you as you walk past us today. And at the back of my head, as a feminist who wants to see more women get involved in politics, any young women around here, what does that do to encourage? Gosh, it's so shocking. Um, Currently, the doll comprises 23% women, Evelyn, and those levels are lower than than was hoped, right? Yeah, I mean, for example, women accounted for just 24% of councillors elected in 2019, and there have been some co-options since, so bringing that number up to 25%. And one of the tools being used, of course, uh, to help our quotas, you know, back in 2012 when the Oireachtas adopted that law. So at this point, the threshold is going to rise to 40% from uh, 2023 onwards and sanctions if those quotas aren't met. But the phrases you keep hearing with this topic, Claire, those C's, you know, the five C's, confidence, childcare, cash, candidate selection and culture. And Evelyn also spoke to councillor Emma Murphy. She's a Fianna Fáil councillor for South Dublin County Council since 2016. They're representing the Furhouse Bohanabrina electoral area and she is planning to run again and she says, look, she loves the work but there are challenges and she says some women councillors have had to leave the council during her term for various reasons but she is firm that she enjoys the role even though there are challenges. So here she tells me a bit more about the reality of it all. I grew up in South Dublin in a council estate and my family think this is alien, particularly when it comes to campaigns and elections. They help me put up posters and they're brilliant leaflet droppers and my nieces and nephews will lean in. But there's nobody involved in politics. But I've been in this game now for nine years. So I've gradually built up a a really strong team around me. And what was it, do you think, you know, that awakened something in you? Was it just the sense of trying to do something for your community? Was that the drive? Yeah, I never thought that I'd actually enjoy the professional political side of it or the campaigning component. You know, having your own face on a poster was something that I really struggled with at the start. And I think a lot of women do. And I still struggle with the face on a poster a bit. But the bit that I really enjoy about the job is that you can actually do small little things that make a massive difference on a community basis. And they're the reasons why I kind of got involved. You know, we talk so much about all the C's, as they say. In your case, you know, I presume cash was an issue and that it wasn't a family 
operation. It is an expensive business. The councillor's salary was 16,000 euros a year. It's now gone up to just under 28. But it still is an expensive business. You know, you're leaflet dropping, you're putting up posters. Like a social media, just something you avoid or how do you manage it? I lean in a bit and then I lean out a lot. So if somebody takes uh, you on, why didn't you give us that park as opposed to another community? You just don't engage, you don't respond. What I try and do there is, do you want to discuss this with me offline? And 90% of the time, that's what happens. I was the first LGBT female to be elected as mayor of a full local authority in Ireland. And it was picked up by the media and they kind of ran with that. And that's absolutely fine. My sexuality is something that I'm you know, very proud of. I have a lovely wife here. But the commentary underneath this was, God, I hope she's got something more going for her than an LGBT or woke. And I think that is a challenge for women within the political sphere that you want to be chosen for your quality and your ability you know there's a bit of a negativity around gender quotas but you know we want to be choosing 40 percent women women have a huge amount to offer in terms of the political spectrum but it's difficult when your family and friends see people comment on your appearance or what you're wearing or your hair there are things that men don't get councillor emma murphy talking to evelyn o'rourke from today with claire Byrne. And on Liveline's Funny Friday, Bridie the Basher Brennan. Now, as part of the Katie Taylor fight in a couple of months' time, we've a potential new world champion with us today who will be boxing. <laughs> who will be boxing on the night in the three arena. Would you please welcome to the D Hotel in Drogheda for the announcement on the way in, Bridie the Basher Brennan from Boyle in County Roscommon. Bridie, Bridie, how are you? How are you? How are you, how are you Joe? Huh? Put him up there, huh? Had you going there, Joe, didn't you look, I? You look, you look in I great shape, right? I'm 30 and I'm still under 30. Ah. But you look in great shape. Training hard? Oh, no, training, no, training is easy. I get up a half an hour before I go to bed. <laughs> uh, and I do a few lunges. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. <laughs> That's a big step for me, I can tell you. You're looking good yourself, Joe, aren't you? Oh, huh? Hot, yeah, Jenny, yeah, isn't yeah. he, girls, isn't he? Yeah. Oh, big up. Jenny, do you know what, Joe? It's hot in here. It's either you, Joe, or it's the lights. But I tell you one thing, I don't sweat much for a big girl. <laughs> but who, can I ask you, Bridie the Basher from Boiler and Kendra, who, who were your boxing heroes when you were growing up? Oh, I'm still growing else? up. <laughs> <laughs> but I love your man, George Foreman. Ah, yeah, great oh, boxer. Oh, yeah, I yeah, really love his grill as well. They make lovely hang sandwiches on them, don't they? <laughs> they all hang. And Muhammad Ali. Oh, yeah. He floats me, boat. He, he floats like a butterfly. He stings like a bee. I just float like the Titanic. <laughs> and, and what did your parents say when you, when you told them you were going to be a boxer? Knock yourself out, they said. <laughs> and your dream is to become world champion one day. World yeah, champion. Well, champ, well, champion or us coming, maybe, you know. <laughs> for a start, I'll take that, you know. But I'm sure, looking at you, you're on a strict nutrition, strict oh, diet, yeah. strict eating regime. Absolutely, absolutely. Oh, yeah. I have me protein chocolate bars. I have me protein Big Macs. I've got my protein donuts and a few bags of, you know, a protein crisps. Oh, yeah, of course. So they're fat-free, of course, you know <laughs> what I mean? And, uh, and I, I like to treat myself for the weekend with that liver and onions for me dinner. <laughs> ah, no, you have to break it out sometimes, don't you, but that, really? But that's a lot of calories. Do you mind me saying that? Ah, but a... I burn it off when I take the dog for a walk. Yeah, you have a dog? Yeah, Bruno. He's a boxer as well. <laughs> Do you get it? <laughs> but you're, you're here today. You say you want to... And this is why I know this is very important boxing, the, 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 the motivational yeah. boxing song. Yeah. What, 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 is, what is your one? Oh, uh, yeah, Joe. Uh, I am. It's, and it's on sale at the back of the hall there um, after the show um, for a fiver. <laughs> so take it away there, Jan. Yeah. 
You buy it. Oh, here we go. Your man down there in the front is mad about me, aren't you, sweetheart? I was born on the side of the hill. One leg was shorter than the other. From chasing bullocks, I had me fill. Was no good, I took it off of the land. I ginger hair to stick in out ears. I'd bandy legs and I was cross-eyed. I realized I had no modeling career. But then I came up with the plan. So if you pay me a fiver, I'll get into the ring. Though I know I look the spit of Casey Taylor. I could get the juices going there, Marty Marcy. Basher Brennan, a.k.a. June Rogers, on Live Lines Funny Friday. And on Morning Ireland, the decade of commemorations, Shane McElhatton was in Tralee to mark 100 years since the Civil War's Murder Month. By the spring of 23, the Civil War had swung decisively in favour of the Free State, but resistance continued in Kerry, and the war in the county plunged to new depths of horror and violence, in what became known as the Murder Month of March 1923. Much of the truth about what happened then took decades to emerge. And the series editor for the Decade of Commemorations of Shane McElhatton, he's there in Tralee Forest. Good morning again, Shane. Good morning, Anya. Yes, you join us again at the Shamesatira Theatre in Tralee, where historians have gathered to assess the terrible events in Kerry during the last months of the Civil War, a hundred years ago. These were really the darkest days of the conflict. The conference participants are asking why these events happened in Kerry, what they tell us about the fledgling Free State government and some of its servants, and why it took so long for much of the truth to emerge. I'm joined here 
by Owen O'Shea, author of No Middle Path, the excellent new book about the war in Kerry, and by historians Dr. Richard McElligot and Dr. Mary McAuliffe. Mary is Director of Gender Studies at UCD, and Richard is Lecturer in Modern and Irish History at Dundalk IT. Owen, could you kick us off by outlining the state of play in the war in Kerry 100 years ago? Um, I suppose by this time, 100 years ago, the, the war in Kerry um, had uh, really become something of a deadlock in the sense that um, the Free State Army was uh, in full control of the large urban centres in the county, the, the, the major towns and villages. Uh, but the anti-treaty IRA remained in the ascendancy in rural er areas. Um, and you have a situation where um, uh, the Free State Army are increasingly unable to contend with the ambushes and attacks from anti-treaty IRA members in rural areas. Um, and the anti-treaty IRA in turn are unable to dislodge uh, the Free State Army from, from the towns and villages in, wh in which they're in control. Um, but you also have um, increasing frustration on the part of government and on the part of the Free State Army at their inability to, in their own words, crush the irregulars and to bring the war to an end. Because by this time, the civil war was over in much of the rest of the country. But the anti-treaty IRA in Kerry would have very much seen themselves as the last defenders of, of, uh, of the Republic in, 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 the, kingdom, uh, in the Kingdom of Kerry. Um, and uh, so you have this increasing tension, which is exacerbated by the beginning of 1923 by the arrival of uh, Paddy O'Daly as head of the Kerry command of the, of the, uh, the army in Kerry, which, um, um, and who brought an increased ruthlessness and, and sense of vengeance to... Uh, to the conflict, um, and on the other hand, an, an anti-treaty IRA who are continuing to be increasingly disruptive in terms of civilian life, in terms of um, uh, trying to make Kerry unpoliceable effectively. Uh, so you have this sense of frustration and tension building and building all of the time, which of course led to some of the very tragic events in the weeks that followed. Yeah, it is necessary to put everything we're going to be talking about in context, that um, if there was a scorched earth policy, it was being carried out by the IRA, not by the army. And you know, General Richard Mulcahy, one of the reasons he was so angry at Kerry was the number of soldiers he was losing escorting food aid to civilians who'd been cut off by IRA ac actions. Correct, and I think that's maybe one of the, the lesser known or forgotten aspects of the war. The, the, the campaign by the anti-treaty IRA in terms of trying to disrupt not only the army but trying to disrupt civilian life in, in Kerry was, was, uh, had huge consequences for economic activity, retail activity, uh, foodstuffs weren't able to get through, uh, food convoys were being attacked by the IRA, um, Free State Army soldiers were being killed in ambushes in rural areas while they were escorting food supplies. Uh, Killarney Mental Hospital, for example, at this time with hundreds of patients had to ration uh, the food it was, it was uh, feeding its patients because of uh, supplies weren't getting through. Railway lines were being disrupted. The IRA were cutting or were, were removing rail lines. That had sometimes very significant consequences in terms of fatalities for the army and for civilians. Um, so you have this, um, as I said, um, a frustration in, in government circles and in, in the senior um, ranks in the army. Why are we not able to bring this, uh, this war to a conclusion? Mary, um was this civilian population uh, conflicted as they were enduring this, while many of them were supporting the anti-treaty cause? Well, of course, many of them, they were the same families. So their relations were on the run, or they were the ones who were being impacted by the activities of the anti-treaty IRA. So it was very, uh, very conflicted, not just as a community, but its families were split on this. Um, and you have to remember that uh, the war had been essentially there for many years now, and people just wanted peace. Yet there was this um, 
attitude of support of the anti-treaty IRA and the Cumann Amman women, particularly Cumann Amman, were, for the most part, helping the anti-treaty IRA, and that would have been a neutral version of it. Most of them were actually very active in helping the anti-treaty IRA. Um, and so the, the, the conflicts within the, the, the kind of emotional and psychological conflicts within the civilian population about the IRA began to dissipate, though, with the impact of what they were doing, the impact on, on the supply of food. Uh, you, you actually had the fact that, you know, they, the army had to use the sea to transport uh, prisoners, say, from Tralee up to Dublin because they couldn't go by rail a lot of the time. Um, and that disruption impacted on everyday life. Um, and then, of course, the, the uh, fact that the economy was absolutely in dire straits and getting worse. Um, and in many ways, you, you can see that when you look at the, drill down into the story, say, at the, the atrocity at Notnagoshal, had to do a lot to do with... Uh, um, the fact that a local family were in dire straits about their own the impact of, say, a bad summer and the local economy on their family farm, uh, and that led to an argument which then escalated into what happened in Nocknagoshal. So that impact on the civilian population is extraordinary. Dr Mary McAuliffe from Morning Ireland with Shane McElhatton. And on the news at one, the backlash about changing the texts of Roald Dahl's books. Puffin Books in the UK has announced the release of the Roald Dahl Classic Collection, quote, to keep the author's classic texts in print following criticism of recent editing of his work to remove potentially offensive language. Books by the much-loved children's author have been rewritten for modern audiences, we were told. Well, the original text will now go alongside updated versions of his hugely popular children's writing. Hugh Linehan, arts and culture editor with the Irish Times, has been writing about this. Hugh, thanks for taking our call. There was quite a backlash against this uh, this uh, original plan to uh, to pu- publish new cleaned up versions of the the Roald Dahl texts. There certainly was, Brian. There was quite a backlash when the Telegraph newspaper in the United Kingdom got hold of a comparison between the new the new text and the old text. And I think the backlash was probably quite justified. It came from some very famous authors, including Salman Rushdie and, and Philip Pullman, because these weren't minor tweaks or minor adjustments, kind of things that have, that have happened in the past when certain styles of writing about people have, have, have fallen out of favour. Mm. They really rewrote large parts of it, and a lot of the time it wasn't quite clear why they did it. But uh, and the overall effect really was was to remove a lot of what made Roald Dahl attractive in the first place, which is this sort of wicked, waspish, dark sense of humour, and to sort of pasteurise or sanitise the whole thing. So now readers will be offered the choice: the the new revised texts or the originals. Yeah, I mean, this seems seems rather absurd to me. I mean, we we should note that uh, Roald Dahl, like many other children's authors, you know, there are other versions before these versions, before what are now, I suppose, we're supposed to call the classic versions. When he first were, uh, wrote uh, Willy Wonka, um, there were objections to some of the some of the um, the settings in that that they were racist, and he took those on board. And in later editions, he altered them. So, would there be a, a, a classic classic version of this, or an, an extra objectionable classic version? We seem to be going down a road to absurdity here. For some reason, these 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 controversies over children's literature seem to be kind of lighting 
soaking up the airwaves these days in a way that they never did previously. It's, it's worth wondering why that might be. Yeah, but of course, I mean, this happens in other art forms as well. Um, you know, time moves on. The way the, the, the way the work was originally viewed shifts with, with changing, shift, shifting public perceptions and values, doesn't it? I think that's absolutely true. And, and, you know, as society changes, as you say, the way in which we, you know, some things just go completely out of fashion and people don't read them anymore or they find them too objectionable. And that's also fine. And I think there is a certain amount of nuance mm. which gets lost in this discussion uh, sometimes. But I think what really got people's goat last week was the, the range, the breadth, the kind of crudeness of the editing which was applied by these so-called sensitivity readers to these Roald Dahl books. Mm. And it does beg a question, which is that, we can see these changes having been made to these texts because the original texts are still around. But what's going on in the background with new writers and new books? And what are they being forced to drop? And what are they being required to do? I mean, are they being really seriously mm-hmm. censored? That's a, that's a question we don't know the answer to. Hugh Linehan from The News at One with Brian Dobson. And on Funny Friday, Liveline was in Drogheda with a special guest. Ucharan, welcome to Funny Friday. Welcome to Drahad. I know it's not too far from the hour, so so you like you like uh, coming. I have I have to put it to you, Ucharan, yes. that the comments you made regarding the discontinuation of homework for young children in our schools has got a lot of negative press from our listeners. Some some are going as far to say that your comments, I quote, are inappropriate to the office of the president. How dare you above any to question my judgment in matters that I can or cannot speak about. Baruch the Ron Hearn as President of Ireland, especially education. I'll tell you, the priest in Kerry was right. You're nothing short of pathetic, so you are. You're a disaster. Uh, no, Who not, do you I, I, think I, I, you but, are? Uh, Ucturan, no, it wasn't, it wasn't my intention, intention with the greatest respect. But what, what to upset, but what is, what is the rationale for banning homework? Well, uh, I must say to you, the educational model has been tried and failed. For example, recently I heard of a post-primary second year uh, class. They they were given their three times tables to learn off by heart because the dreaded Kigara was coming from the Department of Education uh, the following day. Well, the following day arrived, and the kicker arrived, so he did, and he was there, and they were... Well, he asked the first boy, he says, what's three times three? The boy says, 274. <laughs> yes. Then he asked the next boy, he says, what's three times? And the boy said, next Tuesday. <laughs> and the kicker asked the third boy, he says, well, what's three times three? And the boy says, nine. The kicker says, very good, well done. Tell me how you arrived at the answer of nine. Well, the boy says, I took uh, 274 from next Tuesday. <laughs> the teacher... To, to, put, to say the least of it, the teacher was, was, was mortified, you see, so it doesn't work. And another example of a fifth... Well, Ulturan, can I just, just ask you, and I'll don't, don't interrupt you, but it's, I just read in one of the papers this morning that you firmly believe that one of these Chinese weather balloons entered Irish space and Irish airspace and as head of the defence force, did you apparently, this is unsung, I'd love to get us, uh, to, to, for you to uh, reveal this. I know, yeah. You took swift action yes. to oh. stop this in unwelcome incursion yes. by a foreign hostile power. Is that yes. true? Well, of course it's true, because I am the head of the defence forces, so I am. And uh, one night, I was, to tell you the truth, Joe, I was Michael Lure. 
and I went on the tatter, you see, earlier in the day. I had nothing for doing, so I decided to go out for a midnight stroll around 8 o'clock in the evening, you see. <laughs> there I was, I was walking around the grounds of the Auris, you see. And, and it, it was a balmy night, Joe, and I looked up at the star-filled sky and I thought I saw two moons. And I said to myself, maybe there's two moons, maybe they're out on a date or something like that, and maybe they're on their honeymoon. And then, Joe, I realised it was one of those Chinese weather balloons. No. Oh, yes. No. So I sent for the security man and I said, run in and get me the gun quick, the double barrel, as quick as you can. And if you fall, don't wait to get up. <laughs> Well, he did, and I got down on one knee, and I fired at the balloon with the other knee, and the gun in, on my knee sighted, and I made smithereens of the balloon. Oh, and well Joe, done. Joe, who fell out of the balloon? Oh, who? Only Nuala Carey from Wet Air. <laughs> Joe. Oh, she was like an apparition. Look, Ron, you mean a, a, an apparition? Oh, all right, of course. Whatever you say yourself. You know everything, don't you? <laughs> There she was, slowly floating down towards me in her trademark red dress. Oh, Joe. Oh, Jesus, Joe, I was rooted to the ground. I could feel an area of high pressure coming over me. <laughs> and my hectopascals were gone straight through the roof. And my isobars were tightening. I was on cloud nine and she was on cloud ten. And just out of the corner of my eye, Joe, I saw herself coming for me. A face on her mother of God. You could see it was a cold front approaching from the west. <laughs> They're concerned about the ultra keep, no, I'm ke keeping <laughs> firearms, armaments on the grounds of ours and neutrons. Surely that's illegal. I've had a couple of break-ins in the orders. No. Oh, yeah. Thieves no. broke into the utility room and no. they stole everything but the fabric condition. Oh, God. I, I, I suppose it was some comfort when you think it. <laughs> From Live Lines Funny Friday. And that's it for Playback Daily, so mind yourself, till next time.